more effective agile leadership with us, Steve. Well, uh, thanks for having me tonight. I realize that we're in some pretty special circumstances right now, so uh, uh, this turns out to be a pretty good way to address this group, and uh, nice to see the turnout. I'm especially happy to see Sam here from nearby on Camino Island. Uh, I know all about Camino Island, and I think you may have exaggerated the population of Camino, but uh, no harm done. Um, so uh, tonight's talk is more effective agile leadership, uh, and uh, uh, I guess I'll say uh, I'm taking the word leadership pretty seriously on this talk. It actually focuses on you as the leader. Uh, it is really going to present um, leader leaderly concepts. And the gist of the talk, not to bury the lead, is that agile work in most organizations really is sorely in need of leadership. And more than that, it's sorely in need of active leadership. So not just a, a lackadaisical leadership or somebody kind of nominally being appointed the leader, but somebody who's actually taking a very active role and doing, actively doing uh, leaderly things, which I'm going to talk about. Uh, so the foundations of this talk, uh, I should give you a little bit of background. Some of this comes from my company's work with, co with uh, the companies we work with around the world. Uh, some of that is, is uh, my personal experience and work. Some of it is experience that other people here have had. Uh, I've also spent a lot of time the last few years working with leaders, software leaders in particular, so that feeds into the talk somewhat. Um, I host an annual uh, leadership event in the fall uh, called the uh, Constructs Leadership Summit, and so we have a lot of, uh, a lot of uh, uh, good leadership discussions at that event, and those feed into this uh, as well. And uh, I am going to hide you guys because I'm seeing the, <laughs> the amount of motion is completely distracting. So um, let's see if I can figure out how to make you guys go away. Okay, good. Um, and then uh, the book that I published uh, last year, More Effective Agile, I went through a really elaborate review process on that. I received review comments from more than 300 reviewers. Uh, the vast majority of the reviewers uh, were in leadership positions. So I think the lowest level leader that I had was uh, uh, a scrum master uh, type of leader or agile coach, but there were lots and lots of people who had director titles, uh, VP titles, uh, and that was really the bulk of the 300 people. And so while, where my purpose in uh, involving so many people in the review of the manuscript was really just to improve the book, uh, it ended up being a fairly educational process for me just in getting people talking to me about the ground state of Agile in their organizations and what they'd found challenging and uh, what kind of successes they'd had. So it ended up being a much richer source of uh, information than, than I had imagined and, and I think the, the book was a lot better for it, but I was a lot better for it as well. Um, so that's really, those are the factors or sources of information feeding into the talk. Uh, so I want to start by giving a brief history of Agile. I promise you that this is going to be the briefest history of Agile you've ever seen. I also promise not to put up any um, hokey uh, fake watercolor diagrams or pictures. Uh, I want to talk about some common Agile pathologies. That'll be brief as well. Spend a little bit of time take, talking about what I see as the state of Agile on the ground. Uh, and then spend most of the talk uh, dwelling on what it means to actively lead Agile work in your organization. So here's my brief history of Agile development. Uh, Myler Page Jones in the introduction to uh, our principal software engineer's book, uh, uh, Steve Taki, his book, How to Engineer Software, which just came out, uh, in the forward to the book says, people often ask me, would you say that software development is more an art or a science? And I reply, neither. It's a branch of the fashion industry. And I think this is a comment that hits a little bit too close to home, and it hits a little bit too close to home uh, with Agile practices as well. Uh, so here is my brief history of Agile development, going back, starting in 2001, um, continuing on to uh, continuing on to 2010 and 2020. What we saw, what we've seen, is that there's been an accumulation of useful practices. I'm not going to call it a steady accumulation of useful practices. I've probably drawn this as looking more steady than it really has been. And truly, we have a lot more useful practices today than we had 20 years ago. On top of the useful practices, we have also accumulated a mountain of rhetoric. And the rhetoric, I think, dwarfs the useful practices. Uh, and I guess I should be specific about what I mean by rhetoric. The literal definition of rhetoric is language that is intended to have a persuasive or impressive effect on its audience 
but often regarded as lacking in sincerity or meaningful content. Um, in the Agile space, I think there really is a lot of rhetoric according to the, the actual definition of rhetoric. I don't know that it's lacking in sincerity, but certainly there's a lot of language that's lacking in uh, meaningful content. I think the intended effect really is intended to be have an impressive effect uh, without necessarily having a lot of substance. So the point here is that I think the amount of rhetoric vastly exceeds the amount of useful practices, and that sets up a leadership context that uh, you really have to be aware of as someone who's leading agile work in an organization. So this is your leadership context. So this, I think, uh, leads us into, so, so hopefully you agree that that was the briefest history of agile development you've ever seen. Um, that's it for that section of the talk. Uh, I want to turn now to common agile implementation, implementation pathologies. And uh, I'll start just by saying what a healthy implementation looks like. Well, a healthy implementation looks like your staff's interpretation of Agile is aligned with your business needs. So graphically, your business needs you to go in one direction. Your staff's interpretation of Agile is similar and is going the same direction. Everybody's aligned, going the same direction at the same speed. Um, so this is healthy. Uh, pathology number one is that your staff's interpretation of Agile is different than what your business needs. It's not necessarily the opposite, but as you can see in the diagram, the staff interpretation of Agile is going a somewhat different way than uh, the business needs. And I've drawn this dramatically in the diagram, but it wouldn't necessarily be going the opposite direction, but it's just going in a different direction. Uh, pathology number two is that different people on your staff have different interpretations of Agile. Their interpretations vary, and so some of them might be going kind of sort of in the direction your business needs, but some of them are going in different directions, and they're not aligned very well at all not with each other, and not with your business. Pathology number three is your staff actively disagrees with one another about their interpretations of Agile. In this case, instead of the staff actually going in the direction that the business needs, or even for that matter, doing productive work, the staff spends time on what we at Constructs call beer and philosophy conversations, or maybe beer and philosophy arguments, about what Agile really means and what we should really be doing. And this is essentially non-productive discussion that isn't moving the business forward. So they're spending time disagreeing instead of moving the business forward. Pathology number four is your staff agrees in a general vague way with the Agile direction, but it doesn't really understand the purpose um, or the details of the intended direction. And so in this case, the staff is going kind of in the direction you want them to go, but they're not going as quickly as you want them to go or they could go. And they're also not really going in the exact direction you want them to go. So we're while this is not a bad pathology, it's certainly suboptimal. Um, pathology number five is your staff agrees with the Agile transition, but they're overconfident in their Agile skill set. And this is one that we see a lot. When an organization says, hey, we're going to do Agile, we've gone through an Agile transformation, we've given everybody titles of Scrum Master, Product Owner, and we've changed the names of our ceremonies and changed the name of some of our artifacts. This is basically... Agile as ceremony or Agile theater, uh, where the staff interpretation of Agile might be kind of sort of like what the business wants, but they just don't have the skills to fully prosecute in the direction that the business wants them to go. So skills are lacking. Pathology number six is that your staff says it can't adopt Agile unless the whole organization goes Agile. And so basically they just throw up their hands and say, sorry, can't do it. If the business isn't going to be Agile, then we're just not going to try very hard to go in that direction either. Uh, and this is one that we've seen fairly often where uh, it's an all or nothing kind of attitude where if we can't do everything that we want, we're not going to do anything. Uh, and that I think is really is pathological. So, uh, and then pathology number seven is your staff adopts agile culture rhetoric without adopting actual agile practices. And this too is a recipe for getting nothing done, at least nothing that help, helps your business. And we see this, I think I wrote an essay for IEEE software a long time ago called Cargo Cult Software Engineering. And I think we see a lot of that in Agile where we've got people who are adopting the ceremony. And I like the phrase Agile theater, uh, but without actually adopting the practices in a meaningful way, they're not actually getting any benefit. They're not moving the business forward. So I think that uh, in terms of what all this means in terms of organizational pathologies is that you lead in your organization, obviously, 
but you also lead in an industry context. And in the industry context, your staff is being bombarded by information about Agile from Twitter and YouTube and Facebook and blogs that they read and Instagram and Medium articles and LinkedIn articles and so on and so on. And the sources of information are just endless at this point. And so one of the things that you have to do as a leader is recognize that you're not just leading in a context where your staff is getting information from your organization. You're leading in a context where your staff is getting bombarded by information from everywhere. And you actually have to lead effectively enough to cut through all that noise and make it clear what you really want your staff to do. Uh, because if you're not making it clear, then somebody else is providing leadership via Twitter or via YouTube or whatnot, and probably leading your staff in a direction that you actually would really rather not have them, not have them going. So let's turn now to the part three of the talk, the Agile ground state. And I think I'm not going to talk about too many details of the Agile ground state, but I do want to dwell a little bit on some specific uh, elements of the ground state that I think are very useful to know as a leader. And, and keep in mind, this is all going in a certain direction. And the comments I just made about Agile pathology and the social media environment in which you're uh, in which you're leading um, are all going to be relevant uh, in these points. So what I'm going to say is that I think there is a software industry-wide mismatch between agile practices, business objectives, and some agile culture or rhetoric. Uh, so in other words, we have agile practices, they're going one direction, business objectives may be going in a somewhat different direction, agile culture may be going a significantly different direction. Um, so this is a, a, a excerpt from the most recent annual State of Agile report from CollabNet version one. And I thought this was pretty interesting. They have this graph of how companies measure success with Agile initiatives. And if you look at the results, the number one uh, way that they measure success is with customer or user satisfaction. To me, that looks pretty good, right? That's pretty much aligned with the Agile manifesto, the idea of um, we're delivering, you know, we're, we're getting closer to our customers and so on. Second uh, most common response was that companies are measuring success using business value. And this too is, seems pretty closely aligned with my understanding really of Agile from the beginning is that we're supposed to be delivering more business value sooner and so on. On-time delivery, again, I don't see anything that contradicts uh, Agile values there. Um, quality, certainly quality at least in my mind, in good Agile implementations is a pretty strong focus. Productivity is one of the attributes that we're supposed to get with uh, Agile implementation, you know, teams working more effectively and so on. And then the rest of these, I think, are just, you know, kind of general business objectives. Predictability, of course, process improvement, of course, visibility of the project, scope of the product, sure. So these all look pretty reasonable to me in terms of ways that companies measure success with their Agile initiatives. The same report showed how companies measure success with individual Agile projects. And the list is pretty similar. We've got customer or user satisfaction, again, at the top of the list. Business value, again, number two in the list. Um, velocity, which is similar to the, the number three item in the other list. Um, budget versus actual cost, which is essentially some combination of predictability and control. So again, this looks kind of like what I would expect based on Agile as it started almost 20 years ago, these are the kinds of things that Agile is supposed to be good at, right? Um, and, uh, you know, budget versus actual cost. I'm supposed to be able to keep delivering and descending business value order until we run out of money or until nobody, everybody's got what they want, uh, whichever comes first. So, so, so far this all, I don't think there's any big surprises here. Now, that's interesting because so far, you know, this is all kind of what we would expect. Um, but the same report listed the top challenges to adopting and scaling Agile practices. And the challenges look like this. The number one challenge is organizational culture at odds with Agile values. And take a look at that. Organizational culture at odds with Agile values. Now, we just went through the list of organizational objectives uh, for the initiative, Agile initiative and individual projects. And that all looked pretty reasonable, at least I thought so, but now we find the number one challenge to adopting and scaling Agile practices, organizational culture at odds with Agile values. So the question really is, which of these criteria for overall success of an Agile initiative 
aka organizational culture, are at odds with agile values. I don't think customer or user satisfaction is at odds. No, I don't think business values at odds. On-time delivery, I don't think so. Quality at odds. I don't see anything on this list that looks to me like it should be at odds with agile values. Same thing on this um, list of organizational criteria for um, success with individual projects. Customer user satisfaction, not at odds. Business value delivered, nope. Velocity, nope. Budget versus actual cost, nope. I think we, these all seem to be in pretty good alignment. So I think this raises a really interesting question. Why is there a perceived mismatch between organizational culture and agile values when in the same report, the reported objectives are very well aligned with agile values? And I think the answer is that the real conflict is not with organizational values, uh, it is actually with agile rhetoric. And what we see is that there are people on Twitter, and I'm calling out Twitter specifically. I don't think this happens nearly as much on LinkedIn. Um, I don't think it happens as much on Medium. I think Twitter is the main culprit. It happens a little bit in these other social media. But there are people on Twitter who are trying to be as radical as possible with Agile. And in your role as a leader, I think it's important to understand that your staff is reading these people, and they are possibly following them instead of following you. Uh, and so when you look at what certain Agile practitioners are trying to do in terms of trying to push the envelope as far as they can, they are having active discussions about, can we eliminate requirements work? Can we eliminate requirements? Can we eliminate design work? Can we eliminate architecture? Can we eliminate estimates? Can we eliminate management work? What about eliminating managers? Uh, budgets, deadlines, commitments, documentation. There have been discussions about all of these topics. And uh, whether any of this has anything to do with Agile in your organization really depends on you as a leader. If you're actively leading your staff in your Agile implementation, then the stuff on Twitter is just noise and your staff isn't necessarily uh, paying much attention to it. But if you're not actively leading the Agile initiative in your organization, then there's a pretty good chance that your staff is paying attention to this stuff on Twitter and your staff's actually talking about well, how could we eliminate estimates or how could we eliminate budgets or deadlines or commitments or managers? And they're doing that in the absence of real meaningful leadership from the leaders in your organizations, possibly including you. Put a pause on the recording. The label. And they don't work some of the time. And it's actually because of the practices, not because of the use of the practices. There are some agile practices that work fine when they're used well, but they're hard to use well. And they aren't used well most of the time. Um, I think that's okay to say that if that's if that's true of a particular practice. Some there are certainly some practices that I have received a lot of attention that actually don't work most of the time. It's okay to say that. And there are some organizations, I think it's a minority these days, but there are still are some organizations that will not benefit from use of most Agile practices. And none of these statements in any way change the fact that the Agile Toolbox has created and provided some incredibly useful and effective tools that are very valuable in lots of organizations. But this cultural aspect, the rhetorical aspect of there being some inhibition about criticizing practices where criticism is warranted, I just think is kind of crazy. So we need to be a lot more comfortable treating agile practices and agile thoughts and strategies and principles and values as management and technical concepts that can be understood and evaluated in management and technical terms and, and deal with them as such. So my leadership reflection here is um, how can you uh, model treating Agile as a set of technical and management practices whose properties can be understood in technical and management terms. And I'm not inclined to pause the presentation at this point uh, for this particular question, uh, but I'll just throw that out as, as something to consider. All right, so let's turn to the final section of the talk, what it means to actively lead Agile work in your organization. 
And uh, I'm going to base this part of the talk on a talk that I originally gave 10 years ago called Unbreakable Rules of Leadership. And the unbreakable leadership rules look like this. Number one, be sure you're going somewhere. Two, make decisions in the face of ambiguity. Three, put the organization first. Four, be passionate about your company's business. Five, become a student of communication. Six, treat your staff as volunteers. And seven, take responsibility. Uh, and in looking at these, I think you can ask the question, well, does this apply to leading agile um, efforts in organization? And I think the answer across the board is yes. I think each of these leadership rules is in fact unbreakable in its application to uh, leading agile work uh, as well. And so I'm gonna spend the rest of the talk going through these, uh, these rules and talking a little bit about how they apply to agile, agile, agile work. Um, so the first, um, and this I'm gonna phrase in terms of leadership assignments. So my first leadership assignment for you is the first unbreakable rule, be sure you're going somewhere. And here I think um, what's important is to make sure that you are expressing a clear vision of where you want to go with your agile practices. And I like the concept of commander's intent. When we use commander's intent, we publicly define the desired end state. Um, so that's something that we will really emphasize. We emphasize the outcome that we want. Um, we describe the purpose of the change. And by describing the purpose of the change, we uh, enable people to make good decisions about how to achieve the desired end state uh, because the purpose expands on the desired end state. And then we, we may, uh, not necessarily, but sometimes we will identify key tasks to be accomplished. Um, and what that leads to is really good alignment of our staff with our business objectives. If we do a good job of defining this clear vision using commander's intent, and it helps us avoid the scenario where the staff doesn't really understand where, what we're trying to accomplish, and so they go in their own directions. Um, I think as you define a clear vision, you must be specific, uh, but you must not over-constrain how the work is performed. And so this is a little bit of a balancing act. Um, we have to be specific enough to provide direction, but we also have to leave enough details uns unstated so that we're not over-constraining how the work is performed. And I think in general, command and control leadership is inconsistent with agile practices. We don't really see this all that often in the software world, but we do still see it sometimes. Um, and I think it's not just a bad idea in agile leadership, it's also just, I think, bad management in general. Um, so in my book, More Effective Agile, I state a number of key principles, and I think the two relevant key principles here are express clear purpose with commander's intent, um, and, uh, and that means, that means, you know, ask yourself the question, how clearly have you communicated your vision for where you want to lead your organization? Um, and then the related idea is manage to outcomes, not, not details. And I think the second principle is really a good litmus test for how well you're doing on the first principle. If you're starting to manage details, then you're not really expressing only commander's intent. You're starting to get down into the weeds a little bit. Um, my second leadership assignment is the second unbreakable rule, and this is the one where it's about making decisions in the face of ambiguity. The general rule here is one that I developed specifically for software leaders, and I think if I was giving this talk to a sales audience or sales leaders, I think, or other kinds of leaders, the idea of making decisions is not really a, a problem. Uh, may, there may actually be a problem of making decisions too readily. I think because a lot of us in software come from from hands-on technical backgrounds, we are a little bit subject to this occupational hazard of analysis paralysis. And so sometimes we actually need to be reminded that you don't have to have all the data to make a decision. And an awful lot of times uh, making a pretty good decision with 70% of the information now is way better than making a somewhat better decision with 95% of the information later. I think that's a very counterintuitive idea for a lot of analytically oriented people, but it is important that we make decisions in the face of ambiguity. Um, in terms of how this plays out, specifically in the, the gist of this particular talk, is that I think as we make a decision about communicating our clear vision, one of the sources of ambiguity we have to overcome is the ambiguity present in the definition of Agile at the industry level. Uh, and we have a pretty specific way, way to accomplish that. So, a technique that we like is the use of landing zones for defining and monitoring an Agile rollout. Uh, these will vary company by company, 
and this is not intended to be a canonical set, but it's intended to be an example and illustrative. So in this case, if we're going to be defining and monitoring the Agile rollout, the first thing we've got is completing Scrum role assignments by year end. And for each of these landing zones, we've got a scale. And then we've got the definition of what we're trying to do, the percent of staff that have been informed about their Scrum roles. Uh, any term that has an underline on it means that that term is defined more specifically somewhere else. And then we've got levels of goodness defined where anything below 75% here would be failing. Um, our target level is 85%, so we really want to be in this range above 85%. Um, our goal is 90%, and then anything above 95%, we're saying, actually, that's not useful. We really, um, that's the highest level we expect to get to is 95%. So, um, and so we define each of our objectives uh, very, very specifically. So, including the success criteria. So complete agile training by year end. It just happens that the percentages here are the same, but our, our way that we're gonna determine how we're doing on that is by measuring the percentage of staff who have gone through the defined agile training program. Again, that's a defined term where we, we have a specific notion of what staff and agile training program mean in this context. Scrum support in place by year end. Here we define what exactly what we mean by that in measurable terms. The example here is the percentage of underscore in-house coaches who have completed the underscore advanced training program. So we've got specific definitions around that. And we also have specific definitions of how, uh, what percentage constitutes success, you know, what's the minimum that we believe is, uh, is uh, good, and so on. And the other two examples here are adopt agile release and gating process by year end, and executive leadership training complete by year end. Um, and so again, this is not intended to be canonical in any way. What this is intended to do is to say, we can be really, really clear about what we mean by an Agile rollout and what a successful Agile rollout looks like. And most organizations are incredibly vague compared to uh, the standard. Um, now, to give you an example of what a detail for one of these factors might look like, here's the objective of completing Scrum role assignments by year end. So that's this first one here. So we've got our scale, which is the percent of underscore staff who have been form informed about their Scrum roles and team assignments by year end. The way we're going to measure that, or the meter, the measurement instrument, is reports from Scrum Masters on a wiki. And then here's the where we define that underscore staff term specifically. We're defining that as software devs, SDETs, content developers, POs, interns, and leaders. And that includes headcount on board as of year end. So we've got a very specific definition of that. And then we define our um, levels, including the target level. Uh, the stretch level and the minimum level in numeric terms. Uh, once we get through our rollout, we can use a similar approach for defining landing zones for, uh, that can be used to define and monitor um, development work with an Agile focus on an ongoing basis. And here we see the kind of objectives that we saw uh, stated in that, in that survey that I, I began the talk with. So here we're saying what we, what we care about in our Agile focus is customer responsiveness, the business value of delivered work, stakeholder satisfaction, quality, continuous learning. Now in your organization, you could define these however makes sense for your organization. And it actually is significant that your organization's definition might in fact be different than the example that I'm giving here. And that really just points up the fact that if you're gonna lead the Agile work in your organization, you have to be specific about what you're leading. Uh, where are you leading people? Where, where do you want them to go? And you could easily imagine a completely different set of factors here that somebody else leading an Agile initiative would think are important to their organization. And so to the degree that if you look down this list and you say, I disagree with that, I disagree with that, I wouldn't define that that way in my organization. Well, that's really the whole point of this talk is that you're right. You wouldn't define it that way. You'd define it some other way but have you communicated that super clearly and unambiguously to your staff? And if not, what's happening in your organization because of the lack of that communication? Steve, I'm just wondering if you can make a comment on, on uh, uh, your last row of your previous slide about training the executives. And, and I'm in, I'm in, in, in particular, I'm, I'm kind of curious about uh, those executives who haven't quite 
caught the agile aspect of, of flexibility on exactly what is delivered on exactly what date. Because uh, that's, that's often a contentious issue. Well, I think there too, uh, you know, the way that you phrase that assumes a certain objective for an agile implementation in any given organization that might or might not be an objective for the agile implementation. So in this case, um, we've got, you'll notice that this says exec leadership team. So that's a defined term who have completed the underscore agile leadership workshop. So that's a defined term as well. So what that says is that we have a specific workshop that we are going to put um, ideally five or six of our executives through and they'll go through the workshop. Now, um, you know, is it possible that they go through the workshop and that changes some of the other stuff on this slide or the next slide? Yeah, sure. I mean, they might have input that causes us to change course. That's actually agile, isn't it? The whole concept of inspect and adapt. Uh, if they, if our customer comes back and says, no, I don't want it done that way. I want it done a different way. <clears throat> you would think that we would want to pay attention to that. But nominally, you know, the nominal case is we're trying to perform some education and they're going to go through the workshop and then they're going to understand what the engineering organization is trying to do in terms of the agile implementation. So that's the thought here. Right. I've just seen it where they're supposed to understand and they give lip service to understanding, but sometimes you can tell from their responses when what gets delivered isn't what they what they thought it was that, that wait a minute, they didn't understand that agile training they took nine months ago. And so I, I've just seen that. That, that. That's all. Yeah. So, I mean, you know, when you say that, that makes me wonder if there's a misalignment between the business goals of the organization and the specific agile implementation details in that organization. If the execs aren't bought in, then I think somebody should be asking the question, why aren't they bought in? And is one possibility that our agile implementation is actually not aligned with the needs of the business or not as well aligned with the needs of the business as it could be. So, you know, when I hear you say that, I don't automatically assume that, assume that there's anything wrong with the execs. I, you know, I would ask equally, is there a lack of understanding among the execs? And equal to that, is the agile direction of the agile implementation just not going in the direction the business needs it to go? We should be asking both both of those questions. Thank you. All right. So the next leadership assignment, I'm going to combine two of my unbreakable rules, which is put the organization first and be passionate about your company's business. Um, and I think this is an interesting one. Again, I think depending on who I was talking to, I don't know that I would need to make this point in a leadership talk, but we have this really interesting dynamic in software, and it's been true for a long time. And I even talked about it in my book, Rapid Development, which came out 24 years ago, um, that a lot of times software people feel more loyalty to their profession than they do to the organization that they work for. And because I think software people sometimes feel more loyalty to the profession, we find software people sometimes putting uh, their notion of professionalism, which is not completely aligned with their organizations, ahead of what the organization wants. Uh, sometimes they'll put methodological purity above what the organization needs. And so here the point is that as an effective leader, you have to put the organization first. It has to come above the, the prioritization of methodology, methodological purity and that kind of thing. And I think this is actually kind of leadership 101, which is if you're not willing to do that in the organization, literally your organization is going to find someone who will and it's pure rational self-interest on the part of the organization if i am leading the overall organization i don't want somebody going and leading part of my organization in a different direction i want a leader who's going to lead the organization in the direction the organization overall needs to go uh, and similarly i think for those of us with a technical background we have a pretty easy time being passionate about software but you know, a lot of the software projects that we work on are in businesses. They're maybe not super, uh, super sexy, but we have to find some way to be passionate about the business of the company as well as the software part that is our, our first love, so to speak. And the reason for that is if we're going to be leading effectively, 
you can bet that whoever the top leader is in the organization is passionate about the business of the company. And if we don't share that passion, at least to some degree, we're not going to be credible with that person. Uh, and this trickles down into our leadership of, of our staff as well. And so um, I think here the key to understand is that agile development is not a goal in itself. The goal, the real goal are the goals that organizations said were the goals, goals like customer satisfaction, business value, on-time delivery, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and so you need to be focused on your business's specific objectives as the goals. Agile is the means to the end. It is not itself the end. Um, and so the reflection here is, does your organization exist to serve agile practices and philosophy, or do agile practices and philosophy exist to serve your organization? And then, and I think the answer to that, of course, is obvious, but then the following question is, have you been modeling that in your leadership? And I'm not going to ask you to tell me that, but it's just something to think about. Are you actively modeling that to your staff? And I think that's important because of this uh, second reflection that I would encourage you to take on, which is how much attention have you seen your staff pay to business objectives in their discussions of Agile? Have you ever heard your staff say, well, I know this is a popular Agile practice, but it's not that well suited to our business, so we really think all things considered, based on our business objectives, we ought to choose this other practice instead of the more popular practice. And if they haven't said something like that, are they really paying attention to the business as primary? And then I would say, how much attention have you seen your staff pay to business focus and their conduct of Agile? I would say that one of the great unrealized promises of Agile, Agile values from 20 years ago is the idea that we're going to better deliver business value um, than Waterfall did. And I think that what that's turned into is a bunch of process stuff that talks about better delivering functionality or better delivering something. But a lot of times the staff technical staff will actually deprecate the business value as communicated to them by the business people because it'll slow down their velocity or something. Uh, when really, if they're truly trying to deliver more business value, they should be paying a lot more attention to what the business itself is asking for. And so here too, I would, I would ask you to reflect on, have you actually modeled this kind of business focus uh, in your own leadership? Uh, in the book, I have two key principles that are related to this. One is develop a business focus, um, and the other is kind of what I just implied, which is model key agile behaviors. And that's, I think, an important point for you as a leader to model those key agile behaviors in your organization. Uh, the next leadership assignment is to become a student of communication. Uh, and I think here, too, this is something where if I was talking to uh, leaders who came up on the marketing side of the organization, I doubt that I would have to make this point. But I think on the, the people who come up on the technical side, they're not always attuned to the importance of communicating uh, meaningfully, empathetically, uh, amply, uh, and so on. Um, and if you look at the other uh, unbreakable rules, communication is a key part of these other rules, uh, where one of the rules is be sure you're going somewhere. A huge part of that is communicating to other people where you're going in clear terms. Uh, make decisions in the face of ambiguity. It doesn't, make any, it doesn't do any good to make the decision if you don't communicate to people what the decision was or you know, why you made the decision the way that you did. Uh, put the organization first, a big part of that is communicating both upward and downward the importance of putting the organization first. Uh, be passionate about your company's business, that too. You need to communicate that passion. It's not enough to have it internally. You've got to make sure that you communicate in a way that you can share that passion with others. Uh, treating your staff as volunteers, there's a communication aspect to that too, and we'll get to that in a moment. And then take responsibility, same thing. We'll get to that in a moment. So uh, the second to last uh, leadership assignment for you is to the unbreakable rule of treating your staff as volunteers. Uh, the underlying idea here is that uh, your staff, software jobs have always been incredibly portable. There has been a labor shortage in the software field at least since the 1960s. There was an article in Fortune magazine, I believe it was in 1966, that said that there were currently 200,000 programming, there were currently 200,000 programmers, and there were 100,000 open programming jobs in the US. So a labor shortage of approximately uh, uh, 33%. Uh, and that basic situation has persisted to the present day where uh, people can go pretty much anywhere they want to. 
we all talk about the fact that it's hard to find good staff. Uh, and so I think the idea that we treat people as though, as volunteers, meaning they don't have to work here. We have to treat them well enough so that they want to work here, uh, I think is a good leadership guideline for software leaders. Um, in the book, I talk about the idea of autonomy, mastery, and purpose, and this comes from Daniel Pink's uh, work, his book, Drive. Um, and what Pink says is that motivation is accomplished when we, when we achieve the combination of autonomy, mastery, and purpose. So autonomy means that our staff feels like they have the ability to direct their own lives and their own work. Mastery is, I think, often misinterpreted. It's often misinterpreted as getting to some sort of steady state of accomplishment, but that's not what it means. Mastery is about ongoing mastery, the desire to learn and improve on an ongoing basis. And then purpose is about understanding why what you're working on matters. And the interesting thing about this is that if we look at the factors that make for an effective Agile team and the factors that make for a motivated team, Daniel Pink is talking about the second idea, the factors that make for a motivated team, but the factors that actually lead to uh, basically a good Agile team are basically the same. And so um, there's a really high overlap between the factors that make for an effective team and the factors that make for a motivated team. And this is a happy coincidence for us because if we can um, pull on these motivation letter levers, we're also going to be um, increasing the effectiveness of our Agile team. Um, so the key principle here is motivate your staff through autonomy, mastery, and purpose. And then the last uh, leadership assignment we'll talk about tonight is the take responsibility. Um, and I guess I want to emphasize here that this is a super active concept. This is not accept the responsibility that someone else gives you. This is not only do the stuff that your boss tells you to do. This is a very active concept where you are trying to actively take responsibility for whatever is conceivably within your scope um, that, that, that needs to be done. My, uh, Office has uh, lots of energy efficiency, as probably yours do as well, so my lights keep turning off uh, uh, despite me being in here. Um, so, just to, what you know, just to let you know, Steve, that's just like being at Varian, because that happens to there all the time. This is really <laughs> close to being a live presentation. Yeah. Wonderful, wonderful. Thanks for setting it up, John. Great. Um, so, um, what happens if you don't take responsibility? Well, um, at my company, in the early days of, of my company, we used to talk about the stupid smart continuum, and uh, we put a lot of ideas or suggestions on the stupid smart continuum. Uh, as years went by, we revised this, and we put stupid and smart on one axis, but we put lazy and industrious on the other axis, and that gave us a two-by-two two matrix. And so what, what happens when you look at the two-by-two two matrix is obviously we would like everybody to be in the smart and industrious uh, quadrant. And that would be great if we could have our whole staff in that quadrant. But sometimes we just don't have that much industriousness. And if we have staff that are smart and lazy, you know, we're not getting as much work out of them as we could, but it's, it's still a pretty good place to be. Um, if we have staff that are lazy and stupid, well, these staff are not really contributing very much, but they're also really not doing any harm. What we really want to avoid, though, is staff that are industrious and stupid, because those are the staff that can completely undermine our organization. And when I use the word stupid, I'm actually being, you know, funny. I'm trying to be funny. What I really mean is misguided. So if we have staff that are industrious and they're misguided, they can really cause harm to the organization. And when we say that a staff is misguided, what are we saying? We're saying they're not being led in the direction the organization needs. It's the definition of misguided. They're not guided effectively. And so this is what happens if you don't take responsibility is some of your best staff members will be in this industrious and misguided uh, quadrant and they'll take your organization in directions that you, you aren't trying to, trying to take it. So if we look at other areas where you can take responsibility, you look at this list of top challenges to adopting and scaling agile practices. I've removed the cultural mismatch one from the list, but these others I think you as a leader can take some action on and take some responsibility. General organization resistance to change? Yeah, I'd like to see software leaders taking responsibility for trying to overcome that. Inadequate management support and sponsorship? Yeah, if you're that manager, then you can certainly do some work on that. If it's a manager who works under you, you can do some work on that. If it's a manager that works over you, 
Well, there's a leadership opportunity too, where you can actually try to exert some leadership upwards uh, and influence the people above you. Lack of skills or experience with agile methods, I think that's common. I'll say that uh, more about that in a minute. Inconsistent processes, I think that's again, inconsistent processes. This says lack of leadership direction in what specifically we should be doing. Um, I see this one, I'm not sure why they called this out separately. I think these are kind of the same. Um, and then this last one is something that's a little bit more nuts and bolts, I think. Certainly you can influence that as a leader as well. Um, so here's the reflection for you. If your Agile initiative is not meeting expectations, how much of that can be attributed to your leadership? And the related question, what do you need to do to take responsibility for the effectiveness of the Agile work in your organization? Um, you know, I think a related question here based on that set of challenges is, do your teams and individuals have the skills they need to perform effective work? Do you have the right skill set in high leverage roles like Scrum Master and Product Owner? And do you have it in individual contributor roles? And then also we see organizations adopting agile practices like integrating development into test, or rather integrating test into development. Um, but not really providing the skills development needed to, to make that uh, work effectively. So I encourage you to reflect on these points and see how well you think you and your organization are really doing in leading work in these areas. Um, and then I'd also ask, does your implementation of Agile practices support continuous learning, where the goal is not just effective as a steady state, but more effective, meaning something that's constantly improving over time? I think the key principles in this area really end up being a roll-up of many of the early principles, so I'm not going to repeat those. But from the book, the relevant key principles are to increase team capacity by building individual capacity, develop a growth mindset, and inspect and adapt. And I think these last two principles are really key. I think you can infer almost everything else in Agile uh, from those last two principles if you really start uh, looking at what those imply. So I think we can... Uh, draw a few conclusions at this point. Uh, one is that you lead in both an organizational context and an industry context. Uh, consider both in your approach to leadership. Another is that most agile implementations are nowhere near as effective as they could be. Um, I also think leading an effective agile initiative requires active leadership in some unexpected areas and in particular the exact definition of agile and the purpose that agile is intended to serve in your specific organization. And finally, I think general leadership practices matter as much as ever. Uh, we can easily get preoccupied with the things that are different about leading in an agile context, but we also need to pay attention to the things that are the same. Uh, and uh, a lot of my unbreakable rules, I think, are very much about making sure that we uh, don't lose sight of the main objective as we get uh, focused on some of the unique aspects of leading in an agile context. So. That's what I've got for you tonight, and I imagine we've got a few minutes for discussion, uh, at least if people want to stick around for that. Yeah, if anyone has any, uh, yeah, first of all, applause. And you can also use the reactions button on there and have a little applause right up there, so make sure you do that. Um, so we have a few minutes for questions. Uh, please remember you're on mute. Uh, so unmute yourself and uh, we'll just go ahead. Anyone? <laughs> Uh, Kimberly here. I will be happy to say something if no one else does. I am so happy to see engineering leaders talking about the importance of the touchy-feely craft. Thank you. I would say one of the most interesting things from, uh, from our breakout session was they were talking about how it's basically agile theater. That a lot of us have, uh, in our particular group, there wasn't that many people who were actually in an agile situation, but saw a lot of agile theater. Mm -hmm. I found that very fascinating. Yeah, hi, Steve. Uh, this is Kinar here. Uh, I just also want to say that uh, at the beginning of the presentation, what you differentiated between the rhetoric versus the actual practices, that set the tone for the rest of the presentation. So I really like the fact that if you use that lens to kind of look at your practices, I think that goes a long way. But thank you for doing that. Loved it. Yeah, thank you. And I think that goes back to Thomas's comment as well that. Uh, agile theater and the rhetoric are related concepts. Yeah. Yeah. One of the other things that went up in our um, in our breakout was, you know, if your team is um, you have someone on your team is being influenced by 
agile things on via Twitter, then you don't have as much control over your team as you think, because there should be a firm direction and there could be, you know, so there needs to be, I mean, I, again, like I'm not doing that, but there should be, to me, there should be firm management and control in the constructs that are set up. Yeah, I think, you know, part of the reason, one of the reasons I described the definition of agile as an end space of way more practices than you could ever possibly use in an individual project or organization is, you know, it's not that the choice is between agile and non-agile, which is how people try to set it up sometimes. The choice is what flavor of agile. I mean, even if you're all in on agile, you still have to make choices about what flavor of agile you're going to use. Right. Uh, and so if you're not providing leadership on that, you know, you can be all in on agile and still not be going the same direction. So Oddly enough, what came to mind when you said that was it was jello. You got different flavors of jello, but it's all gonna have the right shape and it's gonna move around a little bit, but it's gonna be one flavor. I don't know why that came to mind. I that's a that's a puzzler. I'm not gonna guess why that would come to mind. Yeah. Well, it's like being agile in terms of agile, right? Uh, and actually uh, one thing that I like uh, how you actually approached old principles, old values, yeah, that was a good foundation, but we moved away in the spirit of Agile, we have to kind of like evolve. And uh, I've actually seen where, oh, this is not really, you know, kind of like uh, according to values, or this is not how we were doing it in the, my previous place. Mm -hmm. uh, so really being Agile and uh, adopting the right flavor to our organization, I think that's the key for uh, good adoption. So uh, thank you for actually emphasizing that part as well. So in addition to the theater stuff. Right. Yeah, we, uh, we have a hand raised by uh, by Sam. Yeah, Sam. Hey, uh, just a curiosity and then a question. Curiosity is, uh, these are curious topics, and I was wondering if you've had a conversation with any of the two or three Jeffs often associated with this word Agile. Sure. And then that's uh, the, the real, I, I'd love to hear about that sometime, but the, the question really is, for me, <clears throat> when the, uh, <clears throat> the retrospectives are such an important part of Agile, I was curious, that uh, that term didn't come up in your uh, discussion, and I was wondering if you had specific observations about the way retrospectives are run. Over. Um, well, it came up, but it just didn't maybe come up in the terms that you were expecting. So at the very end, when I talked about inspect and adapt, I think retrospectives are clearly one of the places that you would apply the inspect and adapt uh, uh, principle. Um, you know, there are other places where you should be thinking about inspect and adapt that go beyond just doing it at retrospective time. But I do, I do like the idea that we have a structured place where we're explicitly supposed to be doing some sort of inspecting and thinking about how we're going to adapt. So, um, so I, I don't know that I have any super strong thoughts about exactly how the retrospectives are done. I think in the most, uh, I do think that in the most recent version of the Scrum Guide there's some advice that does not match our experience with effective um, inspect and adapt, which is the idea that you should make at least one change uh, uh, as a result of each retrospective. Um, I think what that sets you up is to have so many changes in flight at the same time that you can't really assess what the effect of, of some of those changes really is. Um, it basically means that you're assuming that each of your changes is going to work. Now, there probably are changes where you can assume that they're going to work. Uh, but what we really want to do is to try to make the change and then continue to to apply inspect and adapt to make sure that the change had the effect that we intended it to. So, um, so that's something where I think, <laughs> you know, the Scrum Guide has evolved over the years and I think you can kind of see some of it as a compromise document in some, some ways. I think that's one where um, people maybe were starting to say, well, we're not seeing enough action being taken as a result of the retrospectives and so people got into a room and debated it and so somebody said oh how about if we just have everybody make at least one change per retrospective so as a compromise that might make sense or just kind of general really really rough rule of thumb maybe but it that doesn't match our experience of what you know is needed to tell whether the changes actually work so um you know that's a case where i think the earlier advice was actually better to just be silent on that particular issue. Uh, Perry, hey. I saw you had a hand up. Sorry. Perry? Uh, I'd like to make two quick uh, uh, terminology observations. Um, uh, going back to that two-axis chart that you had of the uh, um, uh, initially stupid versus smart and um, 
and lazy versus industrious. And uh, I really appreciate that distinction between stupid and misguided because that, um, those two are often mistaken for each other, uh, especially when dealing with team morale. Uh, you know, it, and often calling someone stupid is in and of itself an indication of being misguided. But in the lazy versus industrious, uh, one of my experiences, and, and perhaps I'm splitting hairs on the definitions of the word, but I, I find that true laziness often is the best motivator towards industriousness. You know, people that are the most lazy often come up with the most industrious response because they're trying to get rid of something that they're yeah. too lazy to have to do. Right. Yeah, I actually make that same point in Code Complete toward the end of the book. So I, I agree with you on that point. Um, as you said, I don't know how rigorous we want to get about the uh, terms on that diagram. It's not really intended to be a rigorous diagram. It's in, just intended to make a point. Um, there are a couple other principles in the book that are related that I didn't bring up in the talk, but uh, you know, one of the principles is to decriminalize errors. And I think the idea there is related to the idea of stupid, <clears throat> which is if you're decriminalizing the errors, um, trying to figure out where did the error come from and you're not automatically assuming that it came from somebody being stupid, um, I think that's a better mindset. And the other principle that I didn't really talk about is the principle of um, fix the system rather than fixing the individual. And, and, you know, if we start out thinking most people actually want to do this work, which I think, I think most software people do, in fact, want to do the work, and if they're somehow doing it in a way that seems wrong, then I think a lot of times the leader needs to ask themselves, what is it about the system that I've set up that's leading this person to not work in the way that I intended them to work? And, you know, a lot of times it does come back to communication. They just didn't understand. And maybe they didn't understand because I didn't explain it very well. Um, or maybe, you know, I changed my mind. Or maybe, you know, I, I explained it fine to them, but I explained it wrong to two other people. And then they listened to the two other people and, you know, thought that they had understood it wrong when really I just explained it poorly to the two other people. So, um, you know, I think, I think <laughs> in Code Complete, in the debugging chapter, I talk about the fact that when we're debugging software, we're going to make a lot more rapid progress if we always start out assuming that we're responsible for the bug. And every once in a while, we'll be proved wrong and the bug will be from somewhere else. But really, we're going to fix the vast majority of bugs more quickly if we start out assuming that the bug is our fault. I think in a leaderly role, the similar assumption is, if we start out assuming that the issue is a leadership issue and needs to be fixed at the leadership level, we're going to be right more often and make more rapid progress uh, than if we start out thinking that the, the bug is in the people uh, rather than the bug is in the leadership. So, um, right. I, I've, I've been spinning my mind around your comment on uh, things should be oriented towards the needs of the business. Now, at our 5 o'clock uh, Leadership Academy talk, uh, Kinar uh, spoke about a manager's role balancing results and retention. Yeah. When you talk about needs of the business, so the, need, the business needs results, and for efficiency's sake, the business also needs retention. Right. It's a balancing act between those two. This is, this, this is what Kinar was, uh, was saying. And so I've found in leadership things that when you talk about has the, has the leader communicated well, it comes down to has the leader communicated this balance between results and retention. And, and sometimes prioritizing one hurts the other too bad. And, and that's often the battlefield, uh, at least that's my perception. Yeah, I think absolutes tend not to be very effective. Um, if we're always always favoring short-term objectives, then retention could suffer. Um, at the same time, you know, it doesn't mean we should never favor short-term objectives. And in fact, I think that sometimes it's useful to everybody, the organization and the staff, to favor short-term objectives. You know, um, if you go back to the autonomy, mastery, and purpose point, people actually want to feel that what they're what they're working on matters. If we never have anything that's urgent or important, if we never have anything that's important enough to sacrifice other things for, it starts to make you feel like maybe what you're working on doesn't really matter. And so, 
you know, I think it's okay every once in a while to ask the team to stretch a little bit. If you're doing that every other sprint, that's not good. If you're doing it every sprint, that's not good. But if you're doing it, you know, one sprint out of 10 or something like that, I think that's probably healthy. I think it's probably healthier than never doing it. So, you know, I definitely am like, you know, Mr. Moderate. I don't like the extremes on either end of the scale. Um, and, uh, but, I, you know, I think your point is well taken on their needing to communicate the balance of uh, retention and sustainable sustainability um, along with the fact that the business does have needs from time to time and from time to time those need to take precedence. Uh, Ron, you had a question? Yeah, um, Steve, I'm really curious. I'm not sure that whether, whether we've had this conversation about a holacracy. Um, I live in both um, uh, San Francisco and Seattle, and I find in Seattle that there are a few companies that are approaching this holocrat holocratic uh, idea, Cumulo <laughs> being, Cumulo, I ran into it several several folks at the Agile Management Conference. Uh -huh. I'm not familiar with the term. Can you define the term? Uh, holacracy? Uh -huh. uh, no managers. Uh, so no. no, no, sorry. That, that's sorry. This is one of something I'm really passionate about. That it is not that that there's no managers. It's a pseudo self-organizing non-pyramidal hierarchy. So the idea is that you have a, a top of the organization, a single point of responsibility, and that circles form out in multiple directions from there. But there's always clear traceability. It's more that you opt into participation in each of those circles. Back to you, Ron. Uh, so Cumulo, Cumulo, um, are, you, are you familiar with the company Cumulo in our no, area in I'm Seattle? Not. All right, so that's not gonna, it's not gonna be helpful then either. Um, the, uh, there's this notion of self-organizing organizations as maybe the next evolution of, um, of corporate, uh, corporateness. Um, uh, I think we see a little bit of that with uh, Rich Sheridan's company, Menlo Innovations, in Ann Arbor, for example. And Holacracy well, been talking about no this structure. for a long time. And, uh, you know, I mean, I think it's always useful to go look at who else has ever done this in the history of the world and, you know, how did it work and what, were the con what was the context that made it work. Um, you know, Tom DeMarco has in his book, uh, Why Does Software Cost So Much? He has an extended discussion of different models for teams and talks about choirs and jazz bands and, um, you know, and this kind of thing. And, you know, I think uh, um, <laughs> I gave a lunch and learn session earlier today on the topic of software size and talked about how size introduces all kinds of challenges that you don't see in, it's in small teams, but as you scale up to larger projects, the nature of the challenges becomes different. So I think we see this in team structure where there's a lot of stuff that works fine when you have a small team. There's a lot of stuff that works fine when the team's co-located, that's harder to pull off when it's geographically distributed. There's a lot of stuff that works fine when the team's been together for a long time and has a lot of shared uh, uh, work practices and tacit, tacit knowledge in the team. Um, you know, you start disrupting any of those factors, turnover in the team, geographic distribution, team starts to get larger, um, you know, it gets harder to pull off some of these other models. So, um, and I think a lot of them, a lot of them just don't work as you get to, to the larger size teams. But, you know, I think it's useful to have people continue to see if they can make it work and, you know, maybe they'll find a, a way to make it work that um, hasn't been tried before and, um, you know, but this idea of a uh, high-performing team being some number of people typically under the number 10 is not exactly a new idea to software. It's kind of, in a way, amusing to see it being rolled out in Scrum over the last several years. Um, you know, it's not a new concept, really. I mean, <laughs> you know, how many sporting events do you see where there are 30 people on each team, for example? Um, not very many, right? So... I like some of the comments I'm seeing in the chat from Susan and from uh, Tracy, you know, trial and error, let people make mistakes. That's actually just a great idea. And I always tell people things go wrong, mistakes happen. Some days you're just not going to have it. And, you know, admit it. First of all, don't cover it up. Admit it. Let's fix the problem. Treat it as a team problem. So it, uh, and trust me, I certainly make my share of mistakes and you're going to catch me and I'll catch you. 
Uh, Kimberly, you were going to say something there real quick? <laughs> oh, yeah. Well, I'm a physicist by education, and I can tell you that self-organizing systems are occurring every day in very complex environments with billions, millions, thousands of uh, participants, and I think it's a limit of our own thinking that we don't uh, know how to do this in organizations. So I think it's really we should challenge ourselves uh, to reconsider that because uh, lack of hierarchy does not mean lack of structure. It just means that the processes evolve as the needs change. And I've written a couple of articles about this, and I'm actually participating in this kind of thing in a small scale. But it has been done on a larger scale with self-organizing systems like, you know, what was it, uh, um, Linux, you know, developed all over the world by people <laughs> who weren't yeah. in the same place. There have been examples of that. And I think we need to, to look at that kind of thing, you know, economics and self-organizing systems. We they have a lot of examples of that. It just doesn't, it just doesn't stroke the ego of people who are, in need of status, and the human brains love status. And so yeah. when you don't have a, an org chart in titles, where do you get the status? Something else has to supplant that. I'd like to think more creatively about this.